Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bible to Luke's Gospel, chapter number 18. I hope you're involved in your weekly Bible reading plan and that you're following along with the rest of the Bethel family as we're reading in God's Word together. If you've fallen behind, and I understand there might be some of us have, and maybe you've a bit discouraged, don't, 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 don't. Don't get discouraged, don't quit. Just jump right in. Don't try to catch up. If you're way far behind, just jump in this week's reading. And so follow along. We'll be preaching from one of the readings each week. And so today we're going to be in the 18th chapter of Luke. And so I encourage you to find uh, your copy of God's Word and the 18th chapter of Luke. We'll begin with verse 18 in just a few moments. Today I've entitled the sermon, What Must I Do? And as we read the text, you'll understand why. Many of us struggle with a performance in this life, don't we? You know what? How am I performing in the world? How am I doing compared to others? Is my performance acceptable? Is it a quality performance in how I'm living my life? Is it pleasing to others, the work that I do? Is it pleasing to my boss? Is my wife pleased with how I'm doing in this life? Does my life and how I'm living it reflect how I want to be perceived in this world? And I think really the, the, it boils down to a question of, is it good enough? I mean, is the way I'm living my life good enough? And that begs the question, good enough for who? The question is, who speaks for par on the golf course of life? Who determines what's good enough? I don't want to fall short. I don't want to fail. I don't want to embarrass myself. What about spiritually in your life? Is my life good enough? Will the Lord accept me? Will I find eternal life? These are questions that haunted me as a boy. I'm just being honest. I, I mean haunted me. I remember as a boy laying in bed thinking, am I saved? How could I be? How could I be saved? Look, I see I'm, I'm rebellious. I'm sinful. I have lust and anger and secrets. And these doubt and cause great doubt in my mind and they plague my mind. All of us have closets and there are skeletons hanging in them. And we wonder, how could it be? We wonder, if they really knew me, they wouldn't like me or accept me. And then, this frightening thought, God knows everything about me. I'm toast. That's the struggle. The struggle of, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Will I be accepted? 
Jesus has an encounter with a young man. He's wealthy, we're told in one of the Gospels. He's not only wealthy, he's younger. Not only that, he's an up-and-coming worker in the synagogue, in the church. Yet we see deep lessons from this encounter with Christ. In 18th chapter, verse 18 of Luke, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. I've kept all of these from my youth, he said. Then Jesus heard this. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Then Peter said, look, we left what we had and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there's no one who's left a house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, parents, or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would speak to our hearts through this story in the life of Christ and the encounter with this young man. And Father, how that you confronted him and Father, how you confront us. And Father, the great promise of the hope of eternal life that's given to us by our Lord. Father, today, help us to listen closely. I pray that today that the Spirit the Spirit of God would confront us, Holy Spirit of God, confront our hearts, our lives. Father, convict us of our sin, comfort us in our stress, and lead us, Father, to trusting in Christ alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to look at some of the questions that are asked in this text, and notice in the first the first question is, that's being asked, is what must I do to have eternal life? And this is the question of this rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, first of all, let's talk about the ruler himself. He was a young man. He was up and coming in the synagogue. The Bible tells us that he was very wealthy. He was what people would consider to be a good man. He was 
respectful and honest and hardworking. He was a law keeper. He was a student of the Bible. He was a faithful attender to church. He was incredibly liked. He, he, he didn't, he, he's, he's willing to show humility. As a matter of fact, in one of the Gospels, it tells us that he ran to Jesus as he's approaching another town. When he ran to him, he knelt down before him. He humbled himself to, before him. And he asked a, a sincere question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Before we discount that, I want you to understand that that is a very important question. What must I do? Don't you think that's like a really important question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, how good is good enough? Am I going to inherit eternal life? Am I going to go to heaven? And there's some people who go through life, I can't understand it, but they, they don't even think about it. They don't think about their life, where they're going, what their destiny is, where the, what their relationship with God, what is their purpose for living in this world and in this life. One professor at a preparatory school of young men in England said, how is it with your souls? And the young men said, we don't have time to think about our soul. Well, what about your soul? What about your personal walk with God? What about your relationship to Jesus Christ? When you're young, you think you have all your life. You don't worry about these things. It's an old story that I've told before, but I'll tell it again. In one of these preparatory schools, the professor was talking to the students. He was asking them about their spiritual life. And the boys all seemed to discount it. And so he asked one of the students, he said, so tell me, what's the plan for your life? And he says, I plan to finish this prep school and go to university. He said, what then? He said, I'm going to get my degree. He said, what then? I hope to get a really good job. He said, what then? He said, then I hope to establish myself and move up in my, my work. He said, well, what then? He said, then I hope to get a wife. He said, what then? He said, I hope to have children. He said, what then? He said, then I rear my children and save for my retirement. He said, what then? He said, well, when the children leave, then I'm going to retire early. He said, well, what then? He said, then I'm going to travel the world with my wife. He said, what then? He said, then I'll get older. He said, what then? He said, well, then I'll get even older. He said, what then? Well, I guess I'll get aged. He said, what then? Well, I guess I'll die. What then? How do you live your life? It's an important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Even though it's an important question, it is a flawed question. It's a flawed question in regard to, I cannot earn, I can never merit and by my own efforts, I cannot earn eternal life. If so, then God would be indebted to me because I have earned eternal life. He would owe me what I've worked for. But none can earn eternal life or deserve eternal life in heaven. And that's why Jesus came 
John the Baptist before him, and Jesus himself came. And what was the message that Jesus preached? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Repentance means a change of mind and a change of direction and turning from our sin and turning to God in trust and faith. And live your life in light of the kingdom of God. To live a new and different life. A transformed life. But because the kingdom of God is here. And here's the principles of kingdom living. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. Living in the kingdom means I repent of my selfishness, repent of the idols of my own heart, repent of putting self in the first place. And I'm coming back to God and he's first place in my life. And I want to love God with all that I have, all that I know, all of my passion. I'm in love with God and worship him with my life. The second is I'm going to love people. I'm going to love them. And that's kingdom life. And when you live like that, you find life, real life. This is what Jesus preached. And so this young man's coming to him. But you can't earn it. You can't deserve it. By the works of the law, no flesh can be justified, Paul said. Timothy Keller, in his book, Jesus the King, he says, of course he was missing something because anyone who counts on what they are doing to get eternal life will find that in spite of everything they've accomplished, there's an emptiness, an insecurity, a doubt. Something is bound to be missing How can anyone ever know that they're good enough? You can't. Jesus asked him a question. He said, why do you call me good? He dresses him in this very respectful manner. Good teacher. But Jesus doesn't just let that slide. He stops and says, hold on, hold on. What did you say? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Why do you call me good? Who truly is good? Well, there's only one that's good, right? And that is God. Now, God did say concerning us that we were good. When did he say that? In Genesis chapter number one, verse 31, when God saw all that he made, he said it was very good. But what happened? Man sinned against God. And the woman rebelled and ate of the fruit, and the man rebelled and ate of the fruit, and they sinned against holy God, and the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Death came into the heart of the man and the woman, and sin spread from the first man and woman to every human being. And he said, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good, and that's God. 
I think Jesus is kind of questioning him. He's saying to him, are you saying that I'm good? And if you're saying that I'm good, are you saying that I'm God? Psalm 86.5 says, For you, O Lord, are kind, good, ready to forgive, abounding in faithful love to all who call on you. Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my plea for mercy. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. Only God is good. Tell your neighbor, only God is good. I think they also, also the reason Jesus asked this question is he's really poking at the problem here with this rich young ruler. Do you think you're good? Are you good? You see, this ruler knows deep in his heart that he's not really good. You see, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none of us who are righteous, no, not even one. The Bible says, look with me to the book of Romans in chapter number 2. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, and then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal, do you steal? You who say, you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Even the most self-righteous, persnickety followers of the law, they themselves fail before the law. And so in Romans chapter 3, verse number 10, Paul writes, As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Do you think you're good? So Jesus then moves on and he responds to his question. And so I want us to look at the response to the question that is found here. And he said, you know the commandments, verse 20, do not commit adultery, now watch closely, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Where do these commands come from? 
from the Ten Commandments, right? All right. The orders, not exactly the order we would expect, but Jesus gives. He's speaking to mostly the back half of the Decalogue. And he said, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness. He also says, honor your father and mother. And so the young man pipes up and he said, hey, I've done all that from my youth. I do that. He says, I've obeyed since I've been just a boy. And I've obeyed this. Now, it's debatable whether or not he's truly done that. But he says he has. Some of us who grew up in legalistic homes understand there were certain laws you had to try to obey and you tried to feel good about obeying those laws. We jokingly said the Baptist law when I was a kid was this. I don't drink, I don't dance, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't date girls that do. But we knew there was something deeply wrong inside of us. Because keeping laws doesn't change me. There's something wrong inside, and he knows it, and God knows it. And Christ confronts him with the issue. And notice with me in verse number 21, he said, I've kept these from my youth. And Jesus heard this. He told him, you still lack one thing. There's one thing. He confronts him. And here's the confrontation. One thing you lack. It's not just one thing. It's the main thing. It's the most important thing. And then he looks right through this young man to the very heart of the matter. Sell all you have. Distribute it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. Here's the issue at his heart. At his heart is an idol. And the idol sits on the throne of the young man's heart. It's not noticeable to everyone. But it is to Christ. In the back half of the Decalogue, there's one of the commandments that's not mentioned by Jesus. And that's covetousness. And the issue in the heart of this young man is the idol of wealth and that security sits on the throne of his heart. And you cannot have eternal life if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the issue is exposed. It's the stumbling block in his heart. This one thing is the most important thing. And it's a kingdom call he gives me. Trust me. Yield to me. Repent of your sin of covetousness. Repent of your sin of making wealth the idol of your heart. And sell all you have. Give it to the poor. And follow me. He had a kingdom. But the kingdom was not God's kingdom in its heart. The kingdom was his own kingdom. And we're all little kingdom builders in our life, aren't we? Are you all awake today? This little kingdom building starts really young. Because we're conceived in sin and we're all little sinners. 
Some of you are big sinners. You've grown up, but you're still, a, we're all sinful. How many of y'all agree that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God? We all are. Now, I'm no expert in children and their behavior, but I, you don't have to be an expert to see, be, observe the little kingdom building and how early it starts. How many of y'all spend time with two-year-olds? What's their favorite word? What's one of the first words little babies learn? No. Because they hear it all the time. And they say it with great emphasis. No. My grandchildren do. Because they're little sinners. And the second thing in their kingdom is mine. Put the two-year-olds together to play. You're going to hear the word mine real quick. No, mine. Evie's got this down. Mine, doesn't she? Yeah. She got it from her parents. <laughs> mine. And so little Joe, she's my other granddaughter. It's two years old. She's a little bit older, not much and she knows mine, too. And sometimes we have wrestling over what's mine. You know what I'm talking about. Then you put them in the back seat of the car. And they're still saying mine. You put two babies in the back of the car. They're arguing about mine. They get a little older. They're arguing about kingdom space. Mom, she's looking at me. He breathed on me. And then dad takes his hand, snakes it back to the back, and tries to do discipline while he's driving down the road. Because he's trying to establish his kingdom in the car. It's all about this kingdom. My kingdom. And the call of Christ is to let go of my kingdom and seek his kingdom. That I don't have the idols ruling in my heart, in my life. Because if I rule my heart, it leads to death and not to life. We're to love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and to love our neighbors, ourselves. On these two are all the law and the prophets. And so he calls this man to repent, sell what you have, distribute it to the poor, and you come, you'll, be, you'll find incredible treasure and follow after me. The call to follow me, Jesus, it comes at that cost. If any man would want to come after me, let him do what? What's it say? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Notice the response of this wealthy young man. Verse 23 
After he heard this, he became extremely sad. I think a better translation would be extremely grieved. Sorrowful. Why? Because he was very rich. He loves his riches more than Christ's kingdom. And seeing that he had become grieved, Jesus said how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He was very rich. He had much wealth. But folks, even though he had, by the world's standards, much wealth, here's the problem. The wealth had him. Luke chapter 8, verse 14 talks about the seed that we talked about the other day and that the deceitfulness of riches chokes out the word. In Matthew's gospel, chapter number 6, listen to Jesus' words. In verse number 24, no man can serve two masters, either he'll hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot love both God and money. Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 36, it says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Quoting Timothy Keller again, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the Father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. Is there an idol in your heart? An idol doesn't have to be some statue, some figurine, some trinket. An idol is something or someone that becomes more important than God. An idol is in your heart. An idol takes, continues in your heart. It, it takes your energy, your focus. The orientation of your life is around the idol. It captures your imagination more than God does. And you seek to find from the idol only what God can give you. You see, the first part of the Decalogue was the stumbling block in this young man. And God was not first in his life. Well, this whole encounter causes consternation on the part of the disciples. One of the famous sayings and hard sayings of Jesus is found in all of the scripture is found here in this passage. And seeing that he became grieved, Jesus said how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now think about that for a moment. People have tried to do all kinds of gymnastics about this passage. And it says a camel. Think, how large is a camel? Anybody ever seen a camel? Pretty big. How small is the eye of a needle? Pretty small. Can a camel get through the eye of a needle? The, eye, the answer is no. Not without God. And to the consternation of these disciples who see this perfectly good, young, conservative, Bible-believing, Bible leader in their church, in the synagogue, come and fall humbly, sweetly before Jesus, kneeling and saying, what must I do and inherit eternal life? And then they watch him walk away in grief. And if he can't be saved, whew, what kind of hope do any of us have? And those who heard this said, then who can be saved? Well, I think that's a really good question. And Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is never man's doing. It's all God's doing in our life. It grieves the heart of the Lord when we refuse to repent and to trust in him. But you cannot earn it or merit it. And if there's an idol in your heart, it's hard. It's a work of God in his sovereign grace to change you so that your eyes are open and you repent of your sin. It's physically impossible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. And it's spiritually impossible for a man to save himself. It has to be the work of God. Then who can be saved? Well, all things are possible with God. Amen? So who can be saved? All who call on God, who love God supremely and follow Jesus, that's who can be saved. Peter said, well, we left everything to follow you. Now notice what Jesus said. Yes, you did. Truly, I tell you, there's no one who's left a house, wife, or brothers, or sisters, or parents, or children because of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. Boys, you did leave it all and follow me. And I'm telling you what, your life will be richer here than you could have ever imagined. And your life beyond will be eternal, never ceasing. Hallelujah. Listen, nobody that follows Christ regrets it. It's awesome. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life. And that life abundant, full, and meaningful. Here and now. And eternal life. Amen. But it's only those who God has done a work of grace in your heart. In John's Gospel, chapter number 3, a very familiar passage of Scripture. I want us to look at it briefly. John's Gospel, chapter number 3, and verse number 3. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This was Jesus' answer to Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
And he said, how can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus said, can he enter his mother's womb a second time? And he said, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again, born from above. It's the work of God in your heart. And this is what God has done. An illustration of this thing impossible right before, made possible before the very eyes of the disciples happens in the next chapter. Jesus is going into Jericho and there's a very wealthy, very rich man. Can a rich man be saved? And there's a very rich, rich man of little stature, and he can't see because of the crowd, and he runs on ahead of him and climbs up in a sycamore tree. Anybody remember that guy's name? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Some of y'all singing that song in your head. Jesus gets right to the underneath the sycamore tree, and he looks up, and he says, he knows his name, Zacchaeus. Hey, Zach. Shinny on down, because I'm staying at your house today. And Zacchaeus comes down, and the crowd begins to complain. He's a sinner, a chief tax collector in partnership with Rome, extorted money from some of us. And Jesus doesn't have to tell him to sell all. The work of God happens in his heart. And he said, half of all I have, I'm selling and giving to the poor. And anybody I've cheated or extorted or defrauded, I'm not just going to pay them back an extra 20%. I'm giving them four times. And I'm going to love my neighbor. And I'm going to love God. And Jesus said, today, salvation's come to this house. Amen. Because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Amen. Who can be saved? All who call on his name. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with a heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with his mouth resulting in salvation. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Salvation is found in Jesus only. Galatians 2.21 says righteousness is not through the law, otherwise Christ died for nothing. Galatians 3.7 says, for you know that those who have faith in Jesus are Abraham's son. Salvation is found in no other person but through Jesus Christ. 
but it's repentance from sin and the idols of our heart and it's faith in Jesus and following after him. Amen. My takeaways for today, number one, none of us are righteous in our own works. Tell your neighbor, you can't earn your way to heaven. Number two, you can't inherit eternal life and worship heart idols. You cannot inherit eternal life and worship heart idols. Number three, the call to follow Jesus means surrender all to him as Lord. Number four, salvation is a work of God in our lives. And number five, Christ calls us all to repentance and faith. What great hope there is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It's powerful. It's true. It's life-changing. And I pray that these truths would sink deep into our hearts this day. Holy Spirit of God, convict us. Confront us. And may we repent today. God, Father, we so easily deceive ourselves. I do. God, Father, help me to make you Lord, King, Master of my life and to walk after you to love God, to love people, to be genuine, and to confess Jesus as my Lord. This is our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me as we sing.